beginning. A book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first, laying itself on the line in an act of faith from which a word takes heart and follows, drawing a sentence into its wake. From there, a paragraph amasses, and soon a page, and the book is on its way, finding a voice, calling itself into being. A book must start somewhere, and this one starts here. Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. You've just heard Ruth Ozeki reading from her new novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. The novel follows the story of a young boy, Benny O, who begins to hear voices after his father's death. In this poignant exploration of grief, Ozeki weaves together Zen Buddhism, global pop culture, environmental politics, and the writings of German philosopher Walter Benjamin, not to mention a whole cacophony of voices. On today's episode of Tricycle Talks, I sit down with Ruth to talk about the redemptive power of writing, the interplay between creativity and madness, and relational modes of healing. So I'm here with Ruth Ozeki, novelist, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. She also teaches at Smith College. Hi, Ruth. It's great to have you here. Hi, James. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, so we're here today to talk about your new novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, and that comes out in late September, I think September 21st to be exact. That's right, yes. I have to say, there's so many layers to this book, I scarcely know where to begin. We could begin in so many different places. We've got Buddhism, the German philosopher Walter Benjamin, Marx, Borges, Slavoj Zizek. I think that's the Slavoj in the wheelchair, <laughs> the Slovenian philosopher. thought that was pretty funny. Yes, it's an homage to Zizek. Yeah, it, it was a pretty accurate description, I think. <laughs> and there's a whole chorus of voices woven into a compelling tale about a boy and his mother. So why don't you help me out and tell me a little bit about what the book is about and how you came to write it? Well, it's the story of a young boy named Benny O. Benny, when he's 12 years old, his father dies in a really tragic and stupid accident. Benny is left with his mom, you know, to grieve this. He starts to hear the voice of his father calling his name. And this is something that is not uncommon, that when a loved one passes, very often people will hear their voice. And this, in fact, happened to me after my dad died. It was a memory that I had that was sort of tucked away, but it happened for about a year or so after he died. I'd be doing something like washing the dishes or, you know, folding the laundry. And suddenly, from behind me somewhere, I would hear him calling my name, calling out to me. I'd whip around to see, and then, of course, he wouldn't be there because he was dead. You know, at that moment, there'd be this kind of upswelling of this feeling of grief and loss. And this happened several times, but then eventually it sort of tapered off and faded, and I kind of forgot about it. With Benny, on the other hand, it doesn't taper off and fade. In fact, he becomes even more receptive to the sort of voices and the feeling tone of things that are in his environment. So, for example, you know, he starts to hear the voice of a sneaker calling to him or a Christmas ornament, or, you know, a piece of wilted lettuce. Often he doesn't understand exactly the words that these objects are speaking, but he understands that there's something there that they want to convey. And of course, this becomes very disturbing, especially because his mother, Annabelle, has started working from home and suddenly brings the contents of her entire workplace home with her. 
She's a media monitor, so she monitors news. And suddenly their house is filled with stuff. She also develops a bit of an online shopping habit. She becomes a bit of, I wouldn't say a hoarder exactly, but there's a lot of stuff in the house. And so as a result, it becomes a very cacophonous place. And Benny starts to really suffer. And he discovers that school offers no respite. And eventually he finds refuge at a large public library where libraries are filled with objects and they're filled with talking objects, right? Books. Right. But the books are neatly lined up on the shelf. They know their places and they know how to speak in their library voices. They know how to whisper. So at the library, Benny starts meeting these wonderful characters who are sort of denizens of the library. And one of them is a philosopher poet named Slavoj or the Bottle Man, he's also called. Another is a young performance artist who Benny falls in love with, librarians with sort of magical powers, because of course, librarians all have magical powers, right? right? But the most important relationship he makes there is the relationship with a book. It's a very special book. It's his book. You know, the book speaks to him as books do, and in fact, begins to narrate his life. And in doing so, helps Benny find a way through this, a, a way to think about the voices, a way to be with them, but also how to find his own voice in all of this. Right. Finding one's own voice is a recurring theme in the book. But one of the things I wanted to ask about is that he hears these voices and the conventional understanding is that he suffers from schizophrenia. That's right. So you have the psychiatrist who represents conventional medicine who diagnoses him. And yet, you know, I think you touch on this a little bit as schizophrenia is understood differently in different cultures. For instance, here it's considered an illness and the voices are afflictive. And, you know, I think Tanya Lorman at Stanford, the anthropologist, talks about how in Africa and in India, these voices tend to be more benign, sometimes even helpful. So uh, in a more relationship-oriented collectivist culture, they tend to be experienced differently. So this is an affliction that is culturally inflected. And I was wondering how you're playing with these voices, because on the one hand, we can say, sure, he has schizophrenia. On the other hand, he's sort of sane in a world that has really been turned upside down. Yes, exactly. You know, you've really put your finger on it right there. If there's one thing that I would like to open up for discussion here is, is this idea that mental health in the West anyway is really defined by diagnoses and is treated as a medical condition without any reference to the cultural context. And certainly, you know, for Benny, he's a deeply receptive child, right? And he is having experiences that are unshared and therefore unverifiable externally. But does that necessarily mean that he's sick? I mean, the illness model for this is something that I really question. I think my interest in this grows from several areas, but I have friends who are voice hearers and who are involved in a very active and vibrant culture of people who hear voices and yet who reject the sort of automatic diagnosis of schizophrenia as being the cause. History is full of cases of people who hear voices, but it's never a problem. You know, the voices can be very helpful and they live with the voices. So certainly the attitudes that the culture has towards hearing voices very much shape the way a person will respond to it themselves. Right. Benny's book speaks to him. I think it's the book that says, music or madness, it's totally up to you. And that sort of encapsulates that. Yes. And it also drives a central question in the book, like what is real? That question comes up again and again. Can you talk about that? It's a question that I think we're all plagued by. The book is trying to help Benny understand what's real. You know, if you do have the experience of hearing voices, one of the questions you 
ask, and certainly one of the questions I asked myself when I was hearing my father's voice is, was that real? Or was it, quote, just in my head? It didn't feel like it was in my head. It felt like it was outside my head. It felt very comforting on one hand. It felt sad on the other hand. You know, there was a whole kind of affective tone that was constellated around this. And then the question is, you know, what is real? Yes, it was real. It was very, very real indeed. That's certainly one take that the book has. But, you know, as a fiction writer, to be honest, you know, this is a question I ask myself all the time. Right. I'm in the business of making up unreality. And yet, on the other hand, the stories that I make up are also very real. This question of what is real is something that, especially in a Buddhist context, you know, am I just sort of a dabbler in samsara? It's a very pressing question for me. But I also believe, yes, of course, stories are real. You know, what else is there other than stories? You know, what are we other than stories? I found it very interesting that at a certain point, the psychiatrist herself has to question her diagnosis. And she kind of comes around to, well, what do I know? I think they're going to be okay. Benny and his mother, Annabelle, who, by the way, I thought was a hoarder. I mean, she borderline, maybe borderline hoarding. But she kind of represents the culture's consumption out of a certain despair and grief. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I, I would say that. She's a hoarder in the sense that her house is filled with stuff. But the other thing that I'm really sort of after in the book is to investigate the relationship that we have to the things around us. Certainly here in the West, unless you're living a minimalist lifestyle, you know, most people's lives are just filled with things. I've always been fascinated by the Marie Kondo boom in popularity because I think what she's asking us to do is to just do something that is so automatic in Japan, and that the relationship with objects is one that should be respected. So when she asks you to thank a pair of socks before you throw them away, have a feeling of gratitude towards these objects that have served you well, they're analogs to this in Japanese religious services. For example, if you have a needle or a pin and it breaks, you don't just throw it in the garbage. I mean, first of all, it's sharp and it could hurt you if it gets mad at being thrown out, you know, I mean, that, that could be a problem, right? And so you don't, you save it. And then once a year, you take it to the temple or to the shrine. They have a ceremonial block of tofu there mm-hmm. on the altar and you insert the pin or the needle gratefully into the soft block of tofu so that it can have a soft resting place. And then there's a whole kind of ceremony that's done to honor all of the pins and needles in the neighborhood that have served people there and sort of go off to a nice afterlife. I think maybe without that relationship or without an acknowledgement of that relationship, it all becomes junk. Even at a certain point, they're looking up at the sky and space is becoming full of junk, satellites that have fallen into disuse or weapons or, or remnants of ships. And her house becomes full of what might be considered junk at a certain point because the relationship is off and it's a cacophony of voices that is oppressive. So yeah, I found that very interesting. The book's title, The Book of Form and Emptiness, it'll resonate with the Buddhist audience, of course. Could you speak to the idea of form and emptiness and how it figures into the novel and in your work more generally? The phrase form and emptiness is one of the key teachings in the Heart Sutra, mm-hmm. the sort of central Mahayana Sutra. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. It's referring to the notion of what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing or dependent co-arising or interdependence. I guess the way that I've always liked to think about it is the relationship between, say, a wave and the ocean. Suddenly, this wave starts to pop its little head up and, you know, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it looks around and and it's like, whoa, look at me, I'm a wave. (laughs) I'm like really something. 
this is pretty great. Got this great view. And the wave is just sitting there enjoying its selfhood. And then suddenly it realizes that it's becoming less and it's becoming less and it's merging back into the ocean. And that wave is freaking out and going like, oh no, help. It just moves back into the ocean. <laughs> kind of like us, right? Exactly like us. It's always such a nice way to visualize this, you know, and of course everything in the world is like that too. There's this brief moment of thinking, oh, look at me, I'm something, I'm form. And then boom, it's over. There's something so beautiful about this idea of things coming into being and then receding, coming into being and then falling back into this great ocean of interconnectivity. And that's really what the creative process feels like to me. There's the sort of generative impulse that allows a book or a poem or any work of art to sort of come into being temporarily and then return. But I think in this book, the real key to Benny's story is that you know, at first he feels like he's alone, but he finds help and he finds what is real in community, you know, in Sangha. That's what he finds at the library. The book talks about the sort of rhizomatic interconnectivity of all books. And certainly true in mental health circles, more and more the alternative model of peer support and community support is proving really effective in helping people sort of understand their own experience as a healing force. You know, I found it interesting you talk about community or connection with others when Benny's looking down out of his hospital room at his mother and he feels this compassion for her. And at that moment, he kind of finds his voice. It's this sort of pivotal moment where he stands up and takes responsibility for himself, his family, his community. I thought it was really beautiful. It was uh, completely believable. He's connected. That's exactly what his friends at the library teach him, mm -hmm. the importance of connectivity, you know, with each other, but also with the natural world. You know, when they go to the mountain and he experiences the difference between the made world and the unmade world, mm -hmm. the book teaches him something similar in the bindery when they go to the bindery and, and, you know, the bindery is this kind of mystical place in the basement of the library where books used to be bound, but it's not being used anymore. It's being dismantled. And right there, he, he also experiences the great unbinding. Exactly. <laughs> Which, of course, ties back to the form and emptiness, this great unbinding. Right. It's sort of this sea of unbound matter of ideas. But at a certain point, Benny becomes the bodhisattva of compassion. He hears the cries of the world. And all of a sudden, it's a question of his learning how to live with those voices. Because often we find those voices, all of us find these voices overwhelming. Can you say something about that? And quality of listening that he develops. I've always found the story of Kannon very beautiful, especially the Kannon with the 11 heads and the thousand arms. The way the story is told in the book, Kannon hears the suffering of the world and the suffering is so great that her head bursts open, right? Her head splits and forms like 11 heads. Her arms explode and she develops a thousand arms so that she can better hear and help. And there's something so graphic about that, but there's also something so beautiful about it because I think who can't relate to the feeling of hearing so much suffering, you know, that your head explodes or wanting to help so badly that you wish you have a thousand arms. You know, when Benny is identified as being the Bodhisattva of compassion, we've watched him over the course of the story of the book as his head is exploding, as his body is transfiguring. There's something so beautiful about that story, and I just wanted to evoke it in Benny somehow. You see him go from feeling shame and anger, even sometimes hatred toward his mother, to someone who takes care of her with compassion and equanimity. And it was a very moving thing to see at the end when he 
I mean, I guess that's a spoiler, but when he is able to love her in a very open and, and caring way. Exactly. He's hearing the cries of the world and he can actually deal with it. He grows up. He does grow up. And I was so proud of him when he did. <laughs> he came into being. <laughs> Isn't that what all characters do? Yeah. They just come into being, you know. When I write, I don't know where I'm writing to. I have a sense of the character and I have a sense of their problems. And then I'm like the typing lady in the library. I was wondering that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a typing lady in the library. And I just sit there and my fingers move as I watch. That's my role. Coming back to this notion of a book coming into being. So there's an interesting thing you do with agency there. And I believe we sent you something we wanted you to read. I've had you read it once before when I spoke with you. It's in the beginning, that short piece that opens the book about how a book comes into being. And it's not you writing this book. It's something coming into being. Would you mind reading that? In the beginning, a book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first, laying itself on the line in an act of faith from which a word takes heart and follows, drawing a sentence into its wake. From there, a paragraph amasses and soon a page and the book is on its way, finding a voice, calling itself into being. A book must start somewhere, and this one starts here. That's really wonderful. As soon as I read that, I was hooked. <laughs> I want to say something else. You know, inanimate objects have voices. I mean, Benny hears them, and he hears them to the end. He's just no longer threatened by them. Rather, they're supportive in the way that Tanya Lerman describes cultures in which these voices are supportive. But I also think of Dogen's insentient beings preaching the Dharma, that everything always has something to teach us, whether or not we're able to hear it is another matter. Absolutely. That story was certainly an inspiration for the book. It's always funny talking to people who are conversant with Buddhist literature because they can tease out the sort of hidden Buddhist strands in these mm -hmm. stories that I'm writing. You know, in the same way that A Tale for the Time Being, I was playing with Dogen's fascicle Uji kind of thinking of the book as almost a ridiculously long commentary on Uji. This book was certainly playing with this idea of do insentient beings speak the Dharma. And, you know, my feeling always has been, of course they do. Of course they speak the Dharma. And so I wanted to take that question and then just keep turning it and turning it and turning it and see where it would lead. Yeah, you also play with this notion of authorship. I mean, you read in the beginning, it's clear that something comes into being. But we also think of sutras as spoken by Buddhas and also speaking Buddhas into being. So there's that too, like the Heart Sutra is the mother of all Buddhas. So is Benny writing the book? Is the book creating Benny? And he's a kind of Buddha in a certain way. That's so beautiful. And I think it's true. That was something else I was thinking about as I was writing it, sort of which came first, the book or the boy? You know, who's creating whom? Tried to keep that question alive and ambiguous, unanswered throughout the book because it's unclear. You know, I mean, I think they're co-creating each other. It's only a Buddha and a Buddha. You can't be a Buddha on your own. You know, you can't be a character without a book, right? You right. can't be a book without characters. So, you know, it's, it's that same sort of interdependency. It's pointing back towards that. So, Ruth, you write these characters, but would you say that they also write you? <laughs> of course they do. In the same way that we write each other, don't we? I meet you, we talk, you write me, I write you. And the same holds true for characters. One of the things that I kept thinking about is the way that real healing comes about through relationship and through the way that we talk to each other and the way that we listen to each other. It's this 
almost performance of interconnectivity. And I, I mean that performance not in an acting kind of way, but the enactment of two people coming face to face and talking and listening that provides the redemption and the healing. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Many Buddhist teachings and practices focus on difficult mind states like anger, craving, and jealousy. But it's also important to cultivate positive states of mind. The seven factors of awakening, which include mindfulness, energy, joy, and tranquility, are an important set of qualities also known as the treasures within. Cultivating these positive qualities can bring greater ease and freedom to both our meditation practice and our daily lives. Enrollment is now open for the Seven Factors of Awakening, a new online course led by Bodhi College teachers Christina Feldman and Jaya Redgard. This is an eight-week program of expert instruction, formal meditations, and mindful investigations designed to bring the teachings into your everyday experience. The course begins September 13th. Learn more and sign up today at learn.tricycle.org. And now let's get back to my conversation with novelist Ruth Ozeki. I don't know if you have this in front of you. I'd, I'd prefer actually that you read it, but the book has a voice, like everything has a voice, and books have a purpose, and, and books also speak collectively. And there's this sort of mourning of the passage of books as central, the bindery closes, there's the electronic media, and of course we have a love of books. Love to read that, yeah. Every person is trapped in their own particular bubble of delusion, and it's every person's task in life to break free. We can make the past into the present, take you back in time and help you remember. We can show you things, shift your realities and widen your world. But the work of waking up is up to you. That's so wonderful. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it, it, <laughs> it speaks so clearly to our situation, doesn't it? It certainly does. The book is just trying to explain to Benny here, you know, the limitations of books, the limitations of that particular kind of experience, you know, the experience of reading, the experience of learning about things. But the book is also pointing to this bubble of delusion that we are all trapped in. The philosopher Timothy Morton talks about hyperobjects. For example, capitalism being a hyperobject. It's a bubble of delusion that we perceive as being real. This is reality, but it's a bubble of delusion. And it's just that it's so big that we can't see it for what it is that there's a way of breaking the bubble and waking up to some other reality. And so I think that that's certainly something that I was thinking about as I was writing the book, particularly in terms of Annabelle and her relationship to the world. She's a media monitor, so she's just constantly listening to television, to radio, you know, reading the newspapers, and she's just trapped in this bubble of news sound. Forests are burning and presidential elections are looming, and she too, in the way that we all are, are sort of trapped within this bubble of delusion. And we perceive that to be the only reality that's available to us. How do we even see the bubble as being a bubble? And then how do we break out of it? You know, two things. One, one thing I thought when she was immersed in her media world, looking at everything and keeping track, I thought of that feeling that you can get from watching too much news. And it becomes like so much more junk. The information becomes the kind of junk that clutters our lives. The other thing I thought about in that quote that you read, it's up to us to wake up. That's the part we have to do. Think of a teacher can only tell you so much, or a book can only tell you so much, but the experience, and I thought of the finger pointing to the moon, and the experience has to be embodied, something that you go through. And I thought that the character Benny, 
actually goes through it. He kind of wakes up in this particular moment. You just put your finger on it. It's work to wake up. It's why we practice. Yes, we are all Buddhas. You know, yes, we all have Buddha nature. And yet, in order to realize that, we have to do the work. And I think this is obviously true for anything, but it's certainly true for any kind of spiritual awakening. And I also think it's true for any kind of social justice awakening. It takes teachers, it takes community, but the individual has to make that effort as well. I want to go back to your writing for a moment. There's a certain quote from Slavoj or Slavoj, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, uh, as in Zizek. Zizek, yeah, yeah. I won't read it with a Slovenian accent <laughs> since I don't do accents, so just imagine a Slovenian accent. Uh, he says, let me tell you something about poetry, young schoolboy. Poetry is a problem of form and emptiness. The moment I put one word onto an empty page, I have created a problem for myself. The poem that emerges is form, trying to find a solution to my problem. He sighed. In the end, of course, there are no solutions, only more problems. But this is a good thing. Without problems, there would be no poems. I thought that was a wonderful description of the writing process, perhaps, for you. <laughs> it certainly is, yeah. It's how I justify all of my own suffering. It's how I explain <laughs> it to myself, you know? It's like, oh, okay, I'm suffering. Great, you know? <laughs> I'm a writer. Nothing is wasted. Without suffering, there would not be literature, you know? Right. I mean, what is literature except a chronicle of our suffering? Right, and yet there's redemption in the book. I mean, there really is. I think the vision of some kind of redemption is important, and I think that the reason I write is to find my way towards that. For me, the writing itself is the redemption, the process of writing. So yes, we have suffering. Yes, we have questions. Yes, we have confusion. We have delusion. But the process of writing, that's the work that I do in order to try to find a way of being with the experiences of my life. What's really wonderful about writing fiction in particular is the way that you get a chance to rewrite, that writing is rewriting, and that the process of writing a novel is this process of taking the questions about life that really perplex me, you know, confuse me, and then testing them. So it's like a thought experiment that I write and then rewrite and then rewrite until some kind of resolution emerges. You know, that's why we read, too. We think of the writer as being the person who writes the book and puts it out into the world. And the book is an object. It's a thing. And in that sense, it's kind of solid and unchanging. But it's not. The book is a mutable object. I can write a book and you can read it, James. And in doing that, we've engaged in a process of co-creation. The book that you read is not the book that I wrote. Mm -hmm. Partially, it's the book that I wrote, but it's also the book that you're reading. Right. You're bringing your entire lived experience to it as well. And that holds true for every reader in the world who reads this book. So if the book sells half a million copies, then that's half a million different books that are out there in the world. They propagate. It's a kind of multiverse, to go back to the metaphor of A Tale for the Time Being. I can write something, but I have no idea and no control, really, over how the book is read and what it becomes in the hands of another reader. And that's exciting to me. What I loved is when the debate among the books occurred where they were arguing about whether a book must uplift one or make one happy. And I was saying, well, I certainly hope this one makes me happy because there was a lot of suffering in it. So I found it very redemptive. And I thought, I, I think the book's supposed to uplift me a little bit. Good, good. <laughs> that I was mean, my you know, rating. That's wonderful. Well, I think that it's kind of selfish on my part because I am 
writing to try to understand and to try to find some redemption myself. And hopefully then that that experience will be reflected in the book. Okay, back to your writing for a moment. Benny hears voices and his first attempt at writing, he listens to a table leg that speaks to him. It has its own voice, its own memories, and he writes that down. Can you talk about your own writing in terms of listening? Well, I've always said that novels come to me as voices, and I think that's generally true. Usually it's the voice of a character. I remember with The Tale for the Time Being, it was very clear. The first words I wrote down were the main character's words. She just kind of showed up one day and introduced herself, and she said, Hi, my name is Now, and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time being is? Well, if you give me a moment, I'll tell you. And then she proceeds to tell me for the next 400 pages or something. That's always a kind of a strange experience when a character does that. You asked earlier where this book came from. To some extent, it comes from that experience of hearing voices as a novelist. I remember I was at a library, actually, and was talking about this. I was talking about how, you know, novels come to me as voices. And afterwards, in the Q&A, a man raised his hand and he asked me, you know, when you talk about hearing voices, are you really hearing them with your ear as if they are outside you in the room? Are they real in that sense? Or are you hearing them more with your mind, right? Are you hearing them more with your mind? I explained to him the difference that, for example, when I heard my dad's voice calling to me, I very much heard it with my ear as though it was on the outside of me. But when I hear Nao's voice talking to me, it's more like a feeling in my mind. And then the man went on to tell me about his son, who was a voice hearer, and heard voices as though with his ear that were outside of his head. And and he talked about what a disturbing experience that was for his son. That really got me thinking about this relationship between, or almost a spectrum of voice hearing. When do we call it creativity and when do we call it madness? Mm -hmm. When do we call it creative inspiration? When do we, you know, diagnose it as schizophrenia? It's important to think about this because right now we have such a kind of dualistic notion of what illnesses and particularly, you know, psychiatric illnesses have fallen within a kind of a medicalized diagnostic model. But I think that it's worth considering a different model, a spectrum model. You know, novelists certainly, well, I won't speak for all novelists, but I would certainly put myself on that spectrum. I start writing a novel like this, for example, eight years ago. And I fall completely into a fictional world and become pretty dysfunctional for everything else, you know? Right. It's like being on retreat. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It becomes very, very difficult for me to do anything in the, quote, real world. I fall completely into this imaginary world. It's completely real to me. I always find myself feeling, you know, when I'm in the throes of this, when I'm in the thick of it, I find myself feeling very grateful that I live in a society that not only condones, but celebrates this kind of artistic production. Because Mm -hmm. if it didn't, right, if our society condemned the making up of stories as something that was sick or evil or bad, then I would certainly, people like me, would probably be institutionalized. We would be diagnosed and institutionalized and condemned. In other words, if we pathologized it the way we pathologize hearing voices. Yes, or criminalized it, pathologized it or criminalized it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That could happen. I can see it. I I know. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about the redemptive quality of your writing then. We think of art as a means of survival. 
the characters themselves get through their lives making art. Performance art on a pediatric psych ward, snow globes of nuclear fallout that the Aleph creates, or going back to your last novel, large-scale environmental installations. So how do you see the role of the artist in the face of, say, climate catastrophe, injustice? Well, samsara, I guess, to put it simply. I've always liked Kurt Vonnegut's diagnosis, his analysis, <laughs> which is that artists and writers are sensitive. They're so sensitive, in fact, that when something is off, they're like the canary in the coal mine, and they start mm -hmm. squawking and flapping and screaming, and when something's off in the world, like, for example, climate disaster, climate crisis, that, that artists and writers, that it's our job to start squawking and flapping and keeling over. I think he said that's our only useful function, in fact, is being a kind of an indicator species for imbalances in the world. That seems good. I like that. I like that right. a lot. I can take on that role. Well, talking about a specific species, let's talk about crows for a moment. <laughs> crows have quite a role in this book. They're messengers, protectors, even bodhisattvas. I I'm curious, why crows? Oh, gosh. You know, I just love crows. They're so smart, and they're so interesting and interested and curious, and they're such troublemakers, and that really appeals to me. You know, I lived in Japan for years, you know, and mm -hmm. crows are just a thing. They're everywhere. If you read Haruki Murakami, cats and crows are in all of his books, and that's because cats and crows are just everywhere in, in urban Japan. So, I mean, I guess in some way, you know, when I put crows into the book. It's just, it's just because I've always been fascinated by them. And I love the way that they interact with human culture, the way they bring gifts, mm -hmm. if they feel grateful, the way they will band together and punish people if they feel that they've been wronged, <laughs> the way they mourn for their dead. They're just such amazing animals. Well, they're said to be so intelligent. Very intelligent. Yeah. Crows and ravens have been such potent symbols throughout literary history. And yeah, anyway, I just, I love them. <laughs> I'm going to go from your own writing to teaching writing, because you teach writing at Smith College. In one of our latest episodes, Andy Rotman, a colleague of yours at Smith College, talked to us about his book on Hungry Ghosts. And he insisted that we ask about your approach to teaching writing. So what happens <laughs> in your creative writing seminars? Oh, that's so funny, Andy. Outing me. <laughs> yeah. I guess because I'm, you know, a Zen practitioner and have been for so long, I've just discovered that for me, a formal contemplative practice, a meditation practice, has just been really helpful with my writing. And so this is something that I warn my students about before they apply for the course, that there will be a formal meditation contemplative practice built into the class. And so that's what we do. In fact, the first thing I teach them is how to sit. Mm -hmm. We start every class with meditation. I teach us a very simple body breath meditation, but then also encourage them to explore the senses as well and encourage them to think about the mind as a sense organ and thoughts as being, you know, equivalent to smells and tastes. And so it's just this kind of a way of sort of bringing them back into their bodies because one of the things that I think is such a danger now with all of the devices and all of the ways that we have of sort of sucking ourselves out of our bodies into cyberspace, into, into this kind of disembodied state, it's hard to write from that disembodied place. I think that the best writing is embodied writing. When you read writing that's cliche, for example, 
that's lazy writing. That's disembodied writing. It's writing where the writer has not really taken the time to drop back into the body and feel the feeling that the character is experiencing and then to express that on the page. And I realize that as I'm saying this, a lot of what I'm talking about too is the practice of dropping back into the body, but also being patient, learning the patience that meditation will teach you. Writers are impatient. I'm impatient. You know, most writers I know, they don't want to write. They want to have written. Right. You know? This is something that we all struggle with. I think anybody who's creative is going to be impatient. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think we just need to learn how to sit with that. We need to learn how to, you know, hold that patience. Because somewhere in that tension between patience and impatience, there's a kind of generative impulse that comes from that tension, right? Mm -hmm. That tension itself is generative, right? And so this is something that learning to sit quietly with your mind and become intimate with your mind, that's what you learn. That's what it teaches you. And it's a very, very, very helpful thing for not just writers, obviously, but for all human beings. So I figure even if the students, you know, forget everything else I've taught them, maybe they'll remember that. Maybe they'll remember the experience of sitting quietly and being intimate with their mind. And I was going to ask you if there's a go-to exercise that you give your students, but I think you've just given me a lot of that. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have you on. When I make it up to Northampton, I'll certainly let you know. And I hope you'll be back. And for our listeners, you can pre-order a copy of The Book of Form and Emptiness, which hits the shelves on September 21st. So thank you, Ruth. Great. Thank you so much, James. You've been listening to Ruth Ozeki here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org and let us know what you think. Tricycle Talks is produced by As It Should Be, Sarah Fleming, and Julia Hirsch. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.